As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains, haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta give up. Good morning, good morning, everyone. And Wherever you might be on the planet, this is an important show. Uh, actually, all of our shows, uh, in my mind, are important. But if you don't love what you're doing, then you know you shouldn't be in, shouldn't should not be in the business. We've been broadcasting since 2015, and I gotta say, with WNHH 103.5, which is really a, a, a an outgrowth of the vision of Paul Bass to secure the federal communications license, low power license, it's been a true joy to kind of be involved from a community research, community standpoint. Um, perspective. And I say community research, community standpoint, because information is sometimes researchable. It's verifiable, but it's also you can use that information uh, for your further research and further collective kind of discipline and co collective solutions. We're going to talk about collective solutions today, but also there's always a need for leaders and uh, folks that can kind of shed light on the path and, and participate in the path. Uh, Dr. Emma Lowe is here today. Uh, she describes something called street psychiatry psychiatry as a power flip. We hear this phrase, flip the script. And I really love when uh, it was, this was kind of suggested to me because Dr. Lowe is really involved with how can mental health services meet people where they are instead of uh, requiring them to, to go where the, where the so-called professionals are. And I don't mean to disparage professionals by saying so-called, but, um, but, but how can we really provide, rub shoulders with people and not have barriers to kind of interfere uh, so it's a community-based approach and designed specifically today, we're going to talk about for people experiencing homelessness, reach of street psychiatry. On today, today's show, Dr. Lowe will discuss her work, and it's really just a pleasure to have her ever with us, her work and her research in health services, not only health services implementation, but healthcare access for vulnerable, for vulnerable populations. And I guess got to say that whether you might think that you're not vulnerable, vulnerable today, all of us are vulnerable in, in some ways and can, can be even more vulnerable um, as the economic system uh, engages you. So Dr. Emma Lowe is here. She's uh, at the Yale School of Medicine, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry, Medical Director of the Street Psychiatry Team, Co-Director of Public Psychiatry Track, um, Clinical Faculty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She's a good person. Let me just say it like, say it like that. Uh, also, we're, we're really blessed to have Reverend Dr. Leroy O'Peria with us, pastor of St. Stephen's AME Zion Church and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. Reverend Elvin Clayton is also with us, pastor of Walters Memorial AME Zion Church and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. Let, let's get to it. We have like 50 minutes or so, and it's really just a pleasure to kind of talk about this street psychiatry issue. Dr. Lowe, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having the time and, and to share with us. And but let's jump, let, let's get right into it. Can you tell us um, tell us a little bit about, about this concept of street psychiatry and, and, and um, what is the target population? Yeah, thank you. So I think of street psychiatry as really uh, a method of engaging people that are experiencing homelessness and they um, may or may not have a serious mental illness, meaning something that's very severe, like major depression or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder um, or substance use disorder, and really going to where they are in the community. And like you said, not expecting them to come into the clinic. We know there are many barriers for people who are living on the street um, to coming in for care. There's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of uh, vulnerability in terms of um, people, people's day-to-day -day life. And, and they're oftentimes in survival mode. They don't have the time and the energy to dedicate sometimes hours to waiting for an appointment. Um, they might not have logistical means like a phone um, to remind them of the appointment or to even make the appointment in the first place. And so our model is really about taking the providers out into the community. And so we literally go out with backpacks um, with a multidisciplinary team to encampments, to places where um, people are living in the community, whether it's the green or uh, soup kitchens or encampments um, throughout the city, and we provide treatment there. And I'll say that um, we, we don't just provide treatment, we offer treatment, but a lot of people are not necessarily ready for, for treatment. And so we make that accessible and available to mm. people, but 
also understand that people are at different different stages of change and different um, stages in their kind of recovery. And, and we really respect that and try to work on people's own paces and meet them where they're at, both kind of literally and, and metaphorically. Excellent, excellent. And, and uh, Reverend Perry and Reverend Clayton, just before I kind of ask you for your comments, and it's really just a pleasure to kind of have you join us on these discussions. Uh, but Dr. Lowe, this sounds like, well, let me be frank, hard work, but I guess it's also hard work. I guess that there's a compassion and actually even degree of love involved. Just, uh, you know, if I can get a little bit personal, how did you even develop a passion for this uh, for folks that have been often neglected? Yeah, so I think it started for me um, back in college. I went to a small school, Haverford, Haverford College outside Philadelphia, and I was thinking about medical school at the time, but didn't wasn't sure I was going to necessarily go to medical school or specialize in psychiatry, certainly at that point. Um, I, I was doing some work with people on the streets um, of Philadelphia, just doing like volunteer work. And um, I decided to major in fine arts. And I, my thesis project was painting portraits of people who are living on the streets mm. in Philadelphia and trying to humanize them and, and put a face to homelessness um, in that way. And I, I just really loved that project and um, was able to kind of build these very colorful kind of humanizing portraits of people and, and represent their character and as well as some of their suffering and um, stories. and. That was where it all started, I think. And then um, sort of towards the end of college, I found out about a street medicine program in Pittsburgh, which um, was run by Dr. Jim Withers, who happened yes. to go to Haverford and did a talk at Haverford while I was there. And I was just so enthralled and inspired and um, was able to shadow him for a few weeks uh, over my like winter and spring breaks. And then over the summer, and then found a job there doing um, as an AmeriCorps volunteer and was able to work with their program for the following year, um, which is where I, I feel like that was like a formative transforming mm. experience for me where um, I was under his mentorship and, and learning about um, street medicine, meaning like the sort of general term for all the, all the medical care that is provided to people who are living on the streets, who are out, you know, out under the bridges and making that care accessible for everyone. And then, um, so I, I learned about that model there and also was really um, was able to work with individuals sort of on a uh, more informal basis, doing their case management, kind of helping them go to their medical appointments, um, helping them get services. And, and was really like I, I really loved working with the people with really severe mental illnesses. And they're often the people that other people had a hard time working with. And I mm -hmm. just found them to be the, the most interesting and the, like I had the most compassion for these people. Um, sometimes they had serious mental health issues. Sometimes they had serious substance use disorders and medical issues co-occurring. Um, but it was just like, felt like my calling that I was working with these folks and just really enjoyed working with them and really just was interested in learning more about them and their stories. And, and um, just every, every person was unique and always kind of threw me a challenge every day in different ways. And, um, and then I, I took that with me through medical school where I went to the University of Rochester and um, some students and I started a street medicine outreach program there, just doing kind of um, basic work, like helping people and um, who are on the streets there to get access to medical care. Um, and only later did I discover that I was meant to be a psychiatrist and <laughs> um, did my psychiatry rotation in the very last thing of medical school and was like, oh, this is where I'm meant to be. And these are my people. And um, realized that all this time, all the people that I was working with were suffering from serious mental illnesses and addictions. And that was kind of where I realized all these things matched and went fit together for me and um, was kind of where I, where I belonged. And I really can't imagine practicing psychiatry any other way. It just feels like the most, um, for me at least, like the truest kind of um, form of, of practicing medicine is, is really being of service to the people and being out there um, with them and, and accompanying them. Um, so that's Tremendous. a little bit of my background. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's, it might be a little bit, but it's really so, so substantive. And we have a lot of young people that listen to this show. And so I really appreciate your sharing your transformation and your transitions from career and college and contacts and mentorship uh, for people to see that if, if you, uh, Keep your eye on the prize, so to speak, although the, the prize might not be that clear, you can still kind of follow your instincts. And I love when you mentioned the word calling, 
uh, that, that that's that's so profound. Just before I go to Reverend Perry and Reverend Clayton, Dr. Law, I wanted to kind of just uh, share with people and have you remind folks that whether we're talking about the New Haven Green or Penn City here in New Haven or uh, Calcutta, India or, or Uganda, where you've uh, practiced as well, this homelessness issue is a, is a global a global concern. Would you like to kind of talk about how that informs your your perspective and your practice? Sure, yeah, I've been really lucky to be able to travel and do some work abroad and um, specifically in between my uh, work in Pittsburgh and medical school, I went to Kolkata, India, where I, I shadowed a street medicine program there that's run by Dr. Jack Prager, who's now actually retired, but he's a, a fantastic uh, physician who whose mission was to provide medical care to those who are living in the slums and on the streets in Kolkata, which as you can imagine, that's um, hundreds of thousands of people. And um, so I was witnessing witnessing that um, in, in a very direct way and seeing how he, he was able to offer medical care for people that had, you know, these diseases that we don't even see in the United States anymore um, because of the, you know, advances in medical care that we take for granted sometimes and seeing people get, you know, TB medications for drug-resistant TB where we, we don't usually see that here. Um, or get having um, treatments for children with vitamin D deficiencies and other nutritional deficiencies that we rarely see. Um, and so, and, and just the vastness of, of seeing that bottle of, of trying to deliver medical care for that vast of a population. Um, and that was really, really um, interesting for me to mm. see and, and kind of um, um, just really how his mission like transcended everything. And even though it was extremely difficult and there were a lot of just like a lot of people and all these systems that you can't really change because it's like he wasn't um, part of the government or part of like the health system formally and is a nonprofit NGO organization. And um, but but seeing how he still like persevered in trying mm -hmm. to like, deliver mm -hmm. care for people that didn't have access to it otherwise um, was very inspiring. Um, and then I was during medical school, I went to Uganda, to rural Uganda through a program uh, through the Albert Einstein School of Medicine mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. run by Jerry Passione. And um, this was a program that medical students would go and, and help the village health worker program run, which um, it's not really formally called street medicine, but I see it in a, as a related model where people um, who are village health workers are trained. Um, usually they are women that have sort of a, um, a middle school or so education level um, and are working, you know, have really good relationships with their community and can be trained in basic health care, especially preventative health care and primary care um, and chronic disease management to help deliver basic care in their communities where there is no other option for health care. The hospital is, is hours away. And so we were working on that project um, there. And I think that that kind of helped me understand street medicine in a sort of rural application um, because it's still the same same idea of like going to people and empowering those. Um, but yeah, I guess what was what was really great about that program was like really the empowerment of the village health workers themselves. And I think that model could be used even more in street medicine. We sometimes um, employ like peer outreach workers, which I think is super super important um, to to provide some of the services and do the outreach to engage people that are difficult to engage just, you know, by having someone that's been there, that's in there, you know, in the been homeless or been suffering from addiction in the past can really relate to them in a different way. Um, and so I think seeing that in, in place in Uganda um, kind of helped, helped me believe in that model of, of people being able to help their own communities and, and being empowered in that way. So. Excellent. Um, excellent. Excellent. We're, we're going to take the deep dive in terms of your, New Haven involvement because you serve as the medical director for the street psychiatry program, which, which works primarily here in the state of New Haven. But Reverend Perry and Reverend Clayton, I just want to kind of weave you in and always good to see, see you gentlemen. Um, but it seems to me, uh, Reverend, that often this society kind of dismisses folks and forgets about people and you may even see them on the street, but you may not really even see them on the street. Um, and sometimes we even are challenged about what we can do to to help, but I guess wondered uh, what your thoughts were about the street psychiatry and street medicine program, and uh, and what what is some of some of its benefits and challenges might be. Reverend Perry. Uh, yes, Tom. Thank you, and Dr. Long. Good to see you again. Um, I 
as you were talking, I realized that I had that my dissertation was on homelessness in New York City during the Dinkins administration. So I, I my dissertation was entitled "Hospitality: A Theological Approach to Homelessness." So we worked with the Fort Washington Armory, where there were 800 men, mostly minority, African American and Hispanic. Who every day this was this was their life, and um, David Dinkins had really I mean as a mayor people don't give him the credit that he deserves but he really tried to make a difference here, mm-hmm. and um, he tried to make for uh, you know just just implement programs that would reach out to homeless people, put them in places where they would be safe, make sure they had food, and and so in the interviews that I had with many of these homeless men, I think there was this this innate suspicion that the government had either mistreated them and they were mistrustful of it. And so they just did not want to participate. And they would rather do nothing than to even get involved. So what the churches, what we were trying to do with the churches were, we were trying to have our members go in and help them write letters, encourage them to you know, get involved in employment, to reach out to their families if they wanted them, this, this contact to continue. Uh, we served meals for them so that they can be in a community where it didn't look like they were estranged, but that there were people there who cared about them. I haven't seen um, any programs like that, but I do think that, that the street ministry is a program that very much so mirrors that kind of caring. And you don't find that everywhere. I, when I was in Torrington, I worked in an agency where, uh, a new opportunities agency, where I had young white kids who had left home and they were living under the bridge and they weren't alone. They were living in the woods. I kind of thought it was exciting in a way that people would dare to do that. I'm, I'm asking, what did you do for your food? They, oh, we hung it up on wires so that the bears wouldn't get it. I said, the bears? Um, I, why would why would you not want to be home? Well, my dad beats my mom. They're on heroin, and we just wanted to get away from there. So they came in looking for vouchers to see if they could, uh, we could help them. New Haven, in larger cities, is more of a crisis, it seems to me. And I think what makes it even worse is is the addiction and the mental health issues that accompany it. So I mean it's a it's a broad problem. I don't I don't know I don't really see any major solutions. I think all we can do is to do the best we can to help. And um Dr. Lowe, one of the things that that always bothered me was that people who have mental illness, you just can't put a band-aid over it. It's it's like how do you I mean this sometimes it takes years to treat these conditions. And like you say, Getting them to be concerned about their own condition is is a monumental task, you know, to take charge of their health. And I don't know if if the missing ingredient is God, I'm just saying, or family or, you know, a sense of, of self-care or self-respect or self-esteem. But there are some missing elements, and I think that we have to continue to struggle to figure out what those missing uh, components are in our in our effort to help uh, the homeless. Indeed, indeed. And, and Reverend Clayton, thank you, Tom and Dr. Lowe. It's such a joy to hear you today. Um, this is a deep subject. Um, in today's economy, with the cost of housing, the cost of food. Um, transportation or lack thereof, cell phones, uh, people may have a phone, but they don't have minutes to to do the thing that they need to do. Um, And and Tom's question, you know, that some people may dismiss what's going on. Some people don't have a clue Hmm. what's going on. And these people who are homeless and have lack in so many areas. Um, if, if I don't know if people 
don't want to help, they don't know how to help. You send them to agencies and, and there's the backlog, there's the lack of employees there. And, and we, we discovered that you're making many phone calls, you're writing letters, and, and it's just a slow process. And, but when a person has a need and the needs are not met, if they didn't have a psychiatric problem, they, they may have it after that. So, <laughs> so, so the, the need of your work, your ministry, Mm. It's it vital to the society to to help uh, in this area to get people from one place to the other. Uh, you, you, we got uh, so much going on. Uh, we're praying for people. We're 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 talking to people, but but we also need the medicine piece and the tangible piece. We need it mm. all. Mm. Mm. Dr. Lowe, Dr. Dr. excuse me, Tom. Dr. Lowe, I have a question for you in terms of the male and female uh, homeless. It just seems like dealing with female homelessness is different than dealing with male homelessness. Do you it find is. that in what you do? And how do, how, do you, how do you work with that in terms of how do you help them, the men against the or over against the women? Well, Reverend Perry and Dr. Lowe, maybe in conjunction with that, this might give, give Dr. Lowe the opportunity to talk about the, as a medical director for street psychiatry, you know, that was working here in the city of New Haven, maybe she can incorporate your, the answer to your question in terms of what her team does, so people can get an overall scope of uh, your, of your comprehensive intervention. So Dr. Lowe, tell us a little about your team and the overall work that is done at the Connecticut Mental Health Center. And then if there are those differences between, are there, you know, sexual male-female issues that need to be addressed. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for those questions. And yeah, I'd love to address that. I guess just to give a broad overview of what we do, um, we're based out of the Connecticut Mental Health Center, and I just have great um, thanks and admiration for the Department of Mental Health and Addictions, who has uh, provided funding for this program since 2019. And um, so we're a state-run um, originally agency and um, in conjunction with Yale, but we um, basically provide what we would provide at CMHC, which is you know your traditional mental health evaluation, your crisis evaluation, um, ongoing mental health medication management, ongoing therapy, um, but we move that out into the community. So we bring all of our releases of information and our intake paperwork and we um, all of our staff, like for our team, which is me um, as a psychiatrist or our other psychiatrist, um, Dr. Fabiola Arbello-Cruz, um, our clinical social worker, Eileen Hamill, um, and our program manager, James Adu, and we um, have outreach workers through um, multiple agencies as well that work with us, and, and we go out to the encampments and, and the green soup kitchens, various areas in New Haven, and um, really try to engage with people, and, and we may not be doing that evaluation right on the spot. We, we have the ability to do that, but we Sometimes it takes months or even years before we get to that point where someone's ready to accept um, mental health treatment. Um, and so we're kind of doing all these, these constant like small evaluations where we're just saying hello to people, offering them basic needs items like socks and food and trying to build trust and relationship with them. And just thinking about what you um, were saying, Reverend Perry, about like the trust and the lack of trust that people have in the system. We find that so often that people don't trust the, the housing system. They don't trust um, the mental health system, the medical system, they've been mistreated many times, and it's very difficult to kind of overcome that barrier in, in terms of, you know, building the relationship with these people. And sometimes it's, it's like I said, months to years before we get any, any ground. And um, so the, so the way that we kind of try to make, make progress is just really respecting people and engaging them on their terms, whether it's like they say, I don't want to talk to you today. And we're like, okay, that's fine. Like, we're not going to talk to you. That's, we want to respect your space and your privacy. We're going into people's like homes. And even if they're, they're experiencing homelessness, it's their space. And um, they have very little uh, oftentimes material possessions and, and their privacy and their space is, is so, and their dignity is what they have. So we, we really try to be very respectful of that. And um, ask people if we can return to talk to them again, ask people, you know, permission to bring someone else in the team to come, come visit them. Um, 
really, really listening and really seeing what the needs are. Uh, sometimes it's like, I really need an ID. That's the most important thing to me. And then I can get a job and then I can start working and then I can get out of this, this cycle. And if that's the priority, that's what we're going to work on. We're not going to push like, oh, you should get your mental health treated. Like that's not the person's priority. So that's not our priority. We really try to be very person-centered with our approach. Um, and we do see a lot of differences with the with men and women. There are definitely more like statistically more men experiencing homelessness than women overall. But I think that it's actually um, probably women may be undercounted because the like women homelessness tends to be people that um, are are doubled up or doing um, unfortunately doing like sex work and and other things that that are just necessary for their survival to get shelter in return. And so those that not necessarily every woman who's experiencing homelessness has to practice sex work, but we see that that is a big population that is often missed in, in terms of counting mm-hmm. people who are experiencing homelessness. And um, and it's also a group that's very mistrustful of the system. They don't want to be found out and they don't want to, you know, they, they don't often even qualify for services because they don't, they aren't considered by the definition of homelessness to be officially homeless because they're not outdoors. Um, the majority of the time, and uh, so they don't even qualify for housing services often. Um, and so those groups, we we find it to be um, important to reach them through different ways. So one organization we partner with is SWAN, um, the Sex Workers and Allies Network, and they um, have a really good pul- like finger on the pulse of the sex work community and making sure that we are able to access the the women in need. And we we've done. Um, therapy groups for them in the past because we found that individually on the street they were very feeling very vulnerable wouldn't want to talk to us would be very like you know closed off guarded they didn't know how to trust us and um but a different approach was to have a group in the community so we would have like a therapy group um, organized by swan and have myself and our therapist lead a, a group with women and they could come on their terms and leave if they wanted to and share whatever they wanted but it was more like a private space that they would have the the opportunity to share with one another some of their their traumas and um, difficulties, and that's the other thing that's I think um, you know common to both men and women, but certainly women um, who've experienced homelessness. It's, there's extremely high rates of trauma from both their their childhood trauma and then ongoing trauma, and people are very likely to be um, victimized on the streets, unfortunately. So. Um, so there's a little bit of that uh, different flavor in terms of vulnerability when addressing homelessness among women versus men. Um, so I hope, hope that helps answer your question. Oh, yeah. I can see your thought process is moving there, Reverend Perry, I, after seeing you a few times on the shows. Yeah. Clayton, you got your hand up? Yeah, I do have a question for Dr. Lowe. Perfect. Okay. Um, Dr. Lowe, can you talk about um, the levels of homelessness? Because you mentioned something about um, in in home part time or, or something of the sort, can you share that with us and, and the listeners? Um, can you say that? I'm not sure exactly what you meant. I think he's asking for a definition of homelessness. Uh, home. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I I would say I'm not going to say this perfectly, but the the HUD <laughs> like the housing and urban development definition which is what is often used for um, benefits for housing is that um, you have to be like sleeping in a place that's, you know, not, not um, traditionally habitated by humans, like a car or outdoors um, or an abandoned building. And, um, and specifically they often define homelessness in terms of time. And so chronic homelessness is different from sort of transitional homelessness and usually there's more resources for people with chronic homelessness because there's, it's, you know, it's a group that's um, tends to have more chronic medical and, and mental health conditions. And um, sometimes it's seen as, um, you know, people don't, you know, there's, there's many thousands and thousands, you know, half a million people in the United States are experiencing homelessness on a given day and they have to kind of triage and prioritize some way. So they prioritize chronic homelessness, which means you're homeless for a year or more, or have, I think, at least three or four episodes of homelessness in a, in a certain time. Um, and so, but you can see that that's, um, that's pretty specific. And, and also it doesn't include, the people that it excludes, I will say, is people that live in hotels. Um, a lot of people are living kind of 
paycheck to paycheck or disability check to disability check. They they can afford a hotel for like a week of the month, maybe. And, and that's clearly very expensive to, to pay, be paying for a hotel as opposed to an apartment. But sometimes they, are, they don't have quite enough money to get an apartment. They need a security deposit and um, that kind of thing. And they can afford $75 for this one hotel room, you know, for the night. So that's where their mind is to like survive and just get a shower, get be warm for that night. Um, so it excludes anyone that's in a, in a hotel or motel um, because that doesn't count as uninhabitable. It excludes people that are doing sex work that are doubled up, for example, in like someone else's house. If you don't have a place to live, but you're sleeping on your friend's couch, that's not does not qualify either. So um, you can see how that kind of excludes a lot of people that would mm -hmm. otherwise be um, mm -hmm. counted, perhaps, and, and given services. Those, those are just some examples. And I have, Dr. I have a, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Reverend Perry. No, so here's here's one of the problems I think that, for example, if you have a person who becomes homeless and they have a child, and now that they're afraid to go to agencies because they think that DCF is going to come in and take their child. So they're they're they I mean they they're desperate to the point where well, they, they'll almost do anything. But the people that are supposed to be there to help them are the people they're afraid of most. I don't know if there's any answer to that kind of catch-22, but it just seems to be, it's a difficult problem. Yeah, I know it's really, it's really hard because people, yeah, don't want to, to have that, um, to have DCF intervene upon them and, and break up their family, but, but also it, it is a you know, a time that's very vulnerable. You don't want to have a child living outside. Like that's right. not a good situation for anyone either. Um, I do know of some family shelters uh, through New Reach is one of the programs that does family shelters. And um, so they do a really good job of, of trying to help people in families. And so um, I I can't say I have a lot of experience. Like I've, I haven't really encountered like a child, you know, like going out on outreach and finding a child just like on the street. Um, with their parent, but um, it would be really hard for me if I did because it, it's sort of like this tension between um, what's best for the child and what's best for the the family might be different, and um, you don't you don't want to have a child living out there. But at the same time, maybe the parent is perfectly capable of caring for that child and, and providing them with with food and sending them to school and doing you know giving them clothing and and doing the the things that that the child needs and. Um, shouldn't be penalized for for an economic situation that they've been put in, you know, you know, not um, to their own fault. So I think it's really it's really difficult, and I think it would be uh, like a case by case kind of thing where you really have to evaluate what's going on and um, what the care that's being given is, and what are the risks, and um, and is there neglect or is there abuse going on, um, and just really get them into those shelter services as soon as possible. And Dr. Lowe and Reverend Perry kind of referenced this, and you you mentioned the word new reach. What are some of the other partners that that you work with? Because I think I want folks to kind of walk away knowing that you're, as medical director for the street psychiatry team, there's a there's a there's a network. That you, you have you have folks on the on the bench as well as folks on the field that you're that that you're coaching and working with. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. We have so many good, really wonderful partners. Um, Cornell Scott Hill Health Center has a street medicine team that operates uh, throughout the city. They actually um, helped teach us what you know where we were going in in the first couple of years, um, where the needs were in the community. So um, they're a really great resource and and have a, a very big team that provides wonderful primary care for people experiencing homelessness in New Haven. Um, the Columbus House is another very large agency that does primarily housing and outreach and engagement and shelter. Um, so we work very closely with them, get a lot of referrals from them. Um, Liberty Community Services as well. They have their own drop-in center and outreach workers um, and housing programs. Um, the Desk Drop-in Center is a, a one of the warming centers currently, but also operates during the day as a drop-in center for resources. We have um, some of our staff go there as well as other agencies kind of coalesce to provide services there. Um, yeah, I mentioned New Reach. Uh, so many other, I'm like, uh, the, <laughs> but, are, are you guys aligned or functionally kind of collaborating with the with the Compass program? Yeah, we are. We were um, sort of involved in, in the initial stages just to provide some um, experience and feedback because we were 
they, they, as you know, as you might expect, our populations overlap. And so their, their founding group was in touch with us to sort of understand what our experience was on the streets and what, the, what we might anticipate would happen um, in, in terms of when they started, started their program. And, and then once they have since launched, we've gotten a couple of referrals from them because um, they're not really designed to provide like ongoing treatment themselves. So they, they're really in, uh, a team that can refer and help connect people with other programs, but they have identified patients for us to, to follow up with. And we have, so um, I think it's just a wonderful resource to have in the community and um, make sure that everyone can get access to mental health treatment when they need it. We have about 15 minutes, everyone. So just as thoughts come to your mind or uh, issues. Yeah, I have another, I have questions. another question. Mm -hmm. So in, in terms of treatment, for example, when we talked to Dr. John Crystal with people with mental health illness, he said that the, the new drug of a superior drug of choice was ketamine. And that uh, it was not readily available to people. And I think he was really saying marginalized people. So, you know, you got one drug for rich people, one drug for poor people. Um, and I think that's a problem. And then it just seems to me that for as long as I can remember, methadone was the thing that they just give people, just say, okay, so here's what we're going to give you. Uh, it's, a, it's the standard now, and you can get this once a week. You, 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 your high will never get so high that you want to steal, kill, rob, or whatever. So we're going to give this to you and, and street and, and, and the work that you do in the community, in the streets, do you find this whole issue about um, the, 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 the drugs that, that, that you have to work with people, do you feel that they are sufficient or maybe that we should, that should be looked at again and re-evaluate it in terms of how we treat people. Because like you say, you have to treat everyone for who they are. And it's not just like a mass treatment of everybody gets the same candy, the same drug or the same treatment because people are different. So I'm just wondering in your work, is that one of the caveats to what you do? Yeah, that's such a good point. And we do see that disparity going on. Um, I guess I would say the like a really good example of that actually is what you mentioned with methadone and um, for the treatment for opioid use disorder. As you may know, there are some there are multiple treatments, methadone being one of the older treatments, and then there's um, also newer treatments like Vivitrol or Naltrexone, which is an injection once a month that um, blocks any opioids from working. There's also Suboxone or buprenorphine, which um, is a, a strip that goes under the tongue that also um, reduces any cravings for opioids. And it works similarly to methadone um, in that it, it provides an opioid replacement um, for the body to feel satisfied by the medication. And so there's no urge to use at, on top of that. And it can, and both, you know, all these medications are actually really life-saving and preventing opioid overdoses. And um, we're in a huge opioid epidemic. And um, but you do see a disparity because um, there in, in terms of people that have access to methadone versus suboxone, for example, um, it tends to be there, there's a racial disparity there. People who are prescribed methadone are more likely to be black and people who are prescribed suboxone are more likely to be white. I think that's largely because suboxone is newer. It's more convenient. And methadone has this kind of stigma against it. Um, even though it's extremely effective, um, but it's it's very highly regulated. So people have to go every day to the clinic, typically until until they've kind of regained a stability in their recovery. But it's um, a little bit more difficult to access. It's it's you can you can walk in and get methadone any day, really, like with the open access programs that App Foundation has. But um, but it can be difficult for people who are on the street because then they have to have to get to that program and go there every day and, and get administered this medication. And that can be um, a huge barrier. We've seen that with our clients that sort of fall out of treatment with methadone because they can't get there every single day. They've, you know, so many transportation issues and barriers. Um, and, and then with uh, Suboxone, we, we actually provide Suboxone ourselves. Um, we can't provide methadone because it's too regulated at the moment, but we can provide Suboxone to people. So that's one of our ways of kind of improving the access and addressing that disparity. 
So we prescribe it and sometimes even pick it up for the patient and deliver it to them. Um, and, and we can even do it the same day. Um, we've tried to kind of really prioritize that since it can be really life-saving um, and making sure that that disparity is a little bit less, at least, um, just trying to, to reduce any barriers that there are for, for people getting the life-saving treatment. So is that an everyday, that's a once a week treatment, Suboxone? Good question. So it's it's every day, but it can be dispensed by a regular pharmacy. So it's kind of like any other prescription that you might get in a pill box. It's just in a different, slightly different format. It's like under the tongue, but it um like I can prescribe it for any number of days that I want. It's either for usually for a week or even up to a month at a time. And so there's much more convenience and flexibility with that kind of scheduling as opposed to methadone. Um, so that we find that that can work better for our population. doesn't always work better, but um, we, we want to make that option accessible for people to sort of not have the, the barrier of having to go to the office to get it. Is it free to them? Yes. You... Um, it's usually people that we work with are almost all on Medicaid, which or Husky, which is the Connecticut Medicaid, and that covers Suboxone fully. Um, and so usually the pharmacy won't have any copay. Um, and if for some reason the person is not eligible for insurance because of immigration status or or other issues, they um, they can come to our clinic at CMHC for um, it, it'll be covered for them at our clinic. Is there any uh, plans or, or vision to take uh, psychiatric street ministry to other cities in the state? Oh, I would love that. I think hopefully, hopefully we can get some of the Demas people to listen in on this. Huh. And um, I'd love to, I'd love to have that happen. Um, I think it, it would be great to be able to expand this, this kind of method and um, apply it in other parts of the state um, because I, I really believe in it as kind of this long, slow process of helping one person at a time, but really can see the see the difference over time and and seeing people get housing and get into recovery. And um, so I, I'd love to see that. Dr. Lowett, maybe expand a little bit, if you would, and, and Reverend Perry asked, and, and you, your answer was so profound in terms of the opioid, opioid situation and the various treatments. But color for us, share with us a little bit, help us to kind of see some of the other behavioral interventions that you're you're involved with then then tie that in again to access to treatment. But I'm just curious about some of the other ser specific services you might provide from a psychiatric standpoint. Um, yeah, so I guess to be a little more specific with, with the interventions, so I mentioned some of the medications that we provide, but also um, we have a licensed therapist on our team and um, it's it's a little different to provide therapy in you know a non-traditional setting where you don't have privacy, you, you don't have like an office sort of security and and like the privacy of four walls. Um, but you know she's she's very creative. She'll do therapy in the car or mm. at the person's encampment. Like we mm. had had people um, where we do we do the visit in their tent because it's you know it's really cold out and they have like a heating mechanism and go in the tent and just talk to them there because that's the most comfortable for them. So they don't have to come out. It's more comfortable, mm -hmm. comfortable for us. Um, sometimes do we, we have visits at various public areas like the library. We can um, usually get a room from them to, you know, to meet with people or um, sometimes in the drop desk drop-in center, there's like upstairs offices. We can take people if they want like a private, private session with us. Um, so psychotherapy is one way that we kind of get creative to try to apply that. Mm -hmm. And then um, the group therapy, I mentioned doing that kind of intervention where we're, we're doing um, group groups in the community, whereas normally they happen in a clinic setting and people come at a certain time and, and are all in one, one clinic. But um, this is really about like making it accessible in the location of people that are primary people that need it. Um, and, and then I guess I'll, I'll just mention like crisis services. Um, we don't typically, we don't see a ton of like what you would call an emergency or crisis. That's usually the mobile crisis team or the compass team, like you mentioned. Um, but we do occasionally encounter people that are, you know, in need of hospitalization or very, you know, very unstable. And we really try to avoid using coercive measures. Our team is very much like on the person's um, own pace and, and prioritizing their autonomy. Um, but it is it is rare, but but it's possible for our team to encounter someone that needs hospitalization and needs needs treatment urgently in the way that we can't provide it right right there, and we can't ensure their safety 
um, in that moment. So it, it is um, something that we have the capacity to do, but we really try to use that as a last resort um, when necessary. Excellent. Yeah, about six more six more minutes, everyone. So let's jump in. Yeah. Okay. So I, you know, I think that the social determinants of health somehow have to be connected with. I mean, it's obviously connected with systemic evil in in our society. I think that what as clergy, one of the things I think that we ask ourselves over and over again is how can we help? As in New Amsterdam, how can we help? And it just seems to me that. Um, one of the ways we can help is by bringing an awareness to the dangers of drugs. I mean, specifically fentanyl, which we don't know much about, and I'm hoping you can give us some insight in because it just seems like it's become um, a real serious issue. And for us to, to go into the community and to talk to people about it, I don't think we really know enough about it. I don't know how it gets here. I don't know how it's made. I don't know how it's distributed. I don't know how young people, old people, I, I, that whole scenario, I think, needs to be more publicized. So even, even in your work, it seems to me that and our work together, we ought to be able to have some kind of pamphlet that we can hand out in churches or in our community, in our schools, to just give people a heads up that, you know, this is, this is dangerous stuff. And you have to be careful. You need to really think about this. So do you have any comments about this fentanyl epidemic that we're going through? That you could help yeah, us definitely. And I have some flyers actually that my colleague made that I can try to get to you about fentanyl and like awareness about it. So I'm glad you mentioned that. It's a, a really great venue to try to dis dispense or disperse that kind of knowledge. So um, yeah, we've seen so many overdoses. And as you've heard on the news, uh, fentanyl is just everywhere now. And usually uh, like majority of the time it is what is responsible for the death in the overdose cases. Um, it's just, it's a, a synthetically made drug. Um, it's an opioid in the class of opioid, but much stronger than heroin gives them uh, even, it, you know, some people are actually looking to use fentanyl um, because it, it provides like a stronger high than heroin does. Um, and now it's been really just so prevalent. It's mixed in almost everyone's drugs. So like people that I ask, oh, do you want to test your drugs for fentanyl? Because we have these testing strips that you, you'll know if you are getting fentanyl, if you're getting pure, whatever other drug you want. Um, unfortunately, everyone's saying that there's fentanyl in everything. <laughs> you don't, it's not even worth testing it. Um, so that's that's been really discouraging because it's it's really hard to hard to combat that when you know it's it's being used so frequently. Um, one thing that we really advocate for is harm reduction, um, which is the sort of philosophy of making sure people are using safely. We can't always get people into treatment. They don't always want the treatment today and Suboxone, Methadone, um, or, or Vivitrol, but we can at least offer them Narcan, which is the overdose like reversal drug that can just be given by anyone. Um, it's an in, in, um, inhaled drug through just a one squeeze uh, inhaler that's very easy to administer if someone's unconscious. Um, so we give that out very regularly to make sure everyone has it in their hands um, to, so that if, if fentanyl was used or if a mixture with fentanyl was used that they can hopefully save the person's life. And people tell me all the time they use the Narcan to save their friend's life. And it's just scary how many times, how often that happens. And, and there are times when it it's, doesn't work and um, someone who's using a loan, we always tell people never use a loan because then you, even if you have Narcan, no one can save you, no one can find you to know that you're not okay. Um, so, so we really try to try to promote that, like the Narcan and then not using a loan. We also give out clean needles to people to make sure that they are using safely, not sharing um, infectious diseases with one another. Um, and we do find that like, you know, even though it, it might sound as though we're, we're promoting um, drug use, we're actually, there's studies that show that people are more likely to actually get treatment when there's a harm reduction program involved, mm -hmm. like a so, um, syringe service um, program. So, and we really believe in that, that model and kind of reducing the overdose deaths. About nine, 90 seconds, everyone. So I want to yeah, maximize Excellent. The time. Thank you. Yeah, get us those flyers so we can send them out. <laughs> we'll do, definitely. Uh, Dr. Lowe, you, you were involved with uh, some policy recommendations for this city, uh, particularly when we had the incident on the green. Just wondered uh, if those have been implemented, if you're involved with any additional discussions with the city from a policy standpoint. 
Yeah, I guess um, I'm not probably directly involved anymore as much, but I would say there's been a lot of talk about kind of a coordinated response for overdoses and that event on the green in 2018 was just like really emblematic and sort of like a warning of like what could be coming um, where all these people, like there are over 100 ED visits in that day of um, people using K2, which is not an opioid, but um, causes very, that particular strain caused very severe effects medically and people had to go to the hospital. Um, but that was kind of a warning. And then we realized like we need a more coordinated response. And since that time, there's been a lot of really great people from the city and other agencies working on overdose um, mapping. And actually, we get alerts every week now of who's, where have overdoses occurred throughout the city and where are the hot spots? What are the trends? If there's like more than a certain number of overdoses, we get an alert that there's been a spike in overdoses um, this week. So just to keep a, a lookout and sort of be prepared for more massive um, uh, overdoses or deaths. Um, so that's been really, really helpful. I think it's still, you know, there's still a ways to go in, in terms of um, working on this and and tackling the crisis, but um, people have really come together to try to try to really make harm reduction available for people and be really on top of the numbers and the, the overdoses and finding out what's causing it. Now we can uh, actually also know what drugs were involved in the overdoses um, very like in a timely way. Tremendous. Yeah. I know you seconds. Get 20 seconds. I was thinking that our community health workers, our young ambassadors, maybe they could team up and walk you could walk them through one day what this journey looks like in the community. I think it would be helpful to them and the community for them to learn and get this on hands-on experience. I'm just throwing that out. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I'd love to, love to speak with you about that more. Dr. Lowe, thank you so much. Your passion thank is so clear. You. Reverend Clayton, Reverend Perry, always good to see you, gentlemen. Listen, I'm never quitting on my mission. I'm gonna roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition. This new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you're stressing, but you're gonna be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working. Open curtains. Haters swerving because they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down. I just gotta get up, get up. Yeah. Cause this is my.